Uh, tonight, we're taking a pause in the Joseph series. I'll finish that in two weeks. Next week, Prom's going to be preaching on discipleship, and then I'll come back, Lord willing, after uh, spending some time with uh, Sam and Courtney Green in Bangladesh. I'll be coming back on the 27th and, and preaching and finishing up the Joseph series. But I want to take a pause for specific reasons that we'll talk about towards the end of today's service but I want you to make sure you all have a handout. If you do not get my attention, I have some extras. Uh, if you don't have a handout, but on the back, hey, probably help me out. Just anybody who needs a handout. I say get my attention. It'd be easier uh, to get his attention. But let's start with announcements real fast um, so we can see. I want you to notice, maybe you noticed it when you walked in, but we have prayer a lot of times at the end of our service during a response song, both in the front and in the back. Uh, but we had gotten feedback and kind of noticed like people don't always know where to go. And so there is a sign in the back that during that part of the service, there will be deacons back there who are willing to pray for you. Just walk up to the sign and they'll know, you'll know that the person there is a deacon. But also after service, you may not feel comfortable stepping out during worship, but if you would like for prayer or to talk with someone, I'm always available wherever you can find me. But then also we'll have deacons who will hang around after service back there at the prayer station. So please just find the sign and um, we encourage you to allow us the blessing of praying over you. Just a few other announcements that you can read, but we will do a town hall uh, today after service. This is for members and non-members, so all are invited to discuss some of the things we're going to talk about in today's sermon. And then kids, and then depending on how long the town hall goes, adults as well, you're invited to karaoke downstairs as a fun kind of fun summer night. Next week is ice cream and game nights, different board games. Bring a board game. We have some, but if you have a specific game you'd like to play, bring that with us next week. Uh, Ajim and Luna have recently moved into an apartment, and we're excited about that. And But they moved from another country and have limited things. And so just like when I moved to New York, you all loved and helped us kind of get basic needs uh, for our apartment. We're doing that for Ajim and Luna as well. You can go to this link that are in the announcements and then you can sign up, and we encourage you, if you didn't already bring it this week, be sure to bring it next Sunday uh, for them so we can show love and hospitality and welcome them uh, again into New York and into their new apartment. And then you see two other meetings. We have a members meeting in two weeks. Uh, that will be for members only from 5.30 to 7.30. Child care and dinner is provided. And then we have a town hall to discuss bylaws on Zoom on August 29th, closer to time. We'll give you uh, that Zoom link, it's on our community chat Discord app as well uh, for all this information is there. What I want to do tonight is, if you have your Bibles, turn me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Tonight is going to be um, a night where I want to cast vision, not only for um, some specific things that we feel like God's leading us into as a church as it relates to our vision uh, on this cube, our vision cube, we say that in the next five years that we as a church will pursue leadership multiplication that will open the doors to gospel saturation to Queens and Nassau County. And as we have been pursuing that, we have gotten to a point where we are getting close to launching our church campus, church plants in East Meadow, Nassau County, Long Island. And we're fulfilling that vision. We're excited about that. And so tonight, I want to give some practical information to that and cast vision for that. But before I get to the practical, I want to 
lay out the theology, the biblical idea of God and mission, and to why this is our vision. Why, well, for us to say this is our vision, that we want to see leadership multiplication. That means we want to send leaders out, and we want to train up leaders. We want to train up pastors. We want to train up ministry leaders to go plant churches all over Queens because we want to see 1% of Queens and Nassau County come to know Christ. Well, to do that, that can't just be done with our church. It's collaborating with other churches and sending out people within our church to help see this vision fulfilled. But why is that our vision? And my goal tonight is to lay out a biblical theology for why that is true that will guide us into some practical things we'll talk about as a church family. So Romans chapter 15, we're going to read in verse 8. If you're there with me, simply say amen. I want to encourage you also, this will all be on the screen. We're going to cover a lot of passages uh, of Scripture tonight, and so you may not be able to flip through them all, but they'll be on the screen. I encourage you to write them down. But this is kind of our main text that summarizes everything we're going to talk about. Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised and to show, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him with Will the Gentiles hope? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let me kind of give just quick explanation to maybe some parts of the text that we don't understand, and then I will kind of break it down a little bit. When it says in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. This is colloquial language. This is theological language, which is in the Jewish custom, to refer to the Jewish people. And then when it says Gentiles, it's referring to all who are not Gentiles. So it just helps us understand what is meant. Meaning that Christ became a servant to the Jewish people to show God's truthfulness to them in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, more specifically their patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So first I want you to notice the two groups of people he's referring to. First to the Jewish people, Christ has become a servant to them to confirm God's faithfulness and truthfulness and glory. And then also to the second group of people, the Gentiles, so that they too may glorify God. You put those two groups together, that's everybody in all of the world. It's the earth. It's all people groups. Meaning Christ became a servant to reveal the glory of God to all people. That's how we could summarize these verses. And that's why he go, then and goes and quotes these Old Testament passages to defend his assertion that this is why Jesus came. And what I want to do tonight is expand on Paul's arguments and continue to show other passages in Scripture that make this true. But here's the main point of today's sermon. The main point of today's sermon, if you want to fill in the blanks, and we'll spend some time walking through this, is this. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant to glorify God and fill you with joy. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant to glorify God 
and fill you with joy. I want to unpack each of the main parts of that phrase so you know that I am not lying. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus humbled himself. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So it's exactly what we're saying. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant to save us. And because of that, he is lifted high and glorified on high. Look at our verse in Romans 15, our text. For I tell you that Christ became a servant. When we think about Jesus and what he has done, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he was willing to let it go, empty himself, take on the form of a servant, meaning he was willing to humble himself. And our text says, I tell you that Christ became a servant. But ask the question, for what purpose did he become a servant? And the rest of verse 8 and following answers that. For I tell you that Christ became a servant, and I have this underlined to help you see the three points that are being made in the text. He became a servant to the circumcised to what? To show God's truthfulness first. So he came to serve, so to show that God is a true God, that he's faithful. To confirm previous promises given to the patriarchs about how God would provide for them and give them life. And then thirdly, in order that the Gentiles might what? Glorify God for his mercy that was shown to them. The salvation of mankind, I want you to hear this, the salvation of mankind was not the chief end for which God redeemed sinners. I want you to pause on that for a second. The salvation of mankind is not the chief end for which God redeemed sinners. The chief end for which God saves is to redeem sinners to himself so that they may glorify his name. See, Christ didn't just die on the cross to forgive you of your sins, sentence over, but he died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to restore us unto himself, so that by receiving that mercy, we would respond in glory to his name. Your salvation is not ultimately about your salvation. Your salvation is ultimately about God's glory. Our salvation is not focused on us, but to to the praise and adoration and glory of God Most High, the creator of the heavens and earth, the gracious and merciful Savior. He saved us and when we could not save ourselves, but he did it for his sake. He did it for his honor and glory. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11 says this. Notice the language here. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
I'm going to read a number of verses, beginning with that one, and I want you to begin to notice the relationship of why God does what he does. Why does he forgive sinners? Why does he save? And notice the language that are often just short phrases, but speak to the great purpose that he does it for his praise and honor. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 14. This will be one of the longer passages we'll look at. But you can see all throughout it the language of God's saving grace. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. For what purpose? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which, which he blessed us in the beloved, referring to Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We're not unpacking all this, but I just want you to notice he's talking about his plan of salvation for you and I. As a plan for the fullness of time, verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might what? What is our response to his gracious saving of our lives? To be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, For what purpose? To the praise of his glory. Look at Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, notice how clear this language is. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Notice that it is about his glory that he is about to act. It is not for their sake, ultimately, although they're about to benefit from it, you're going to see. And in the same way, we benefit from our salvation. It's called salvation. We are saved from God's wrath and have his forgiveness and to be with him for all eternity. But the ultimate purpose is for his sake, not ours. Look at verse 24. What does he say I will do? And notice this is prophetic to the New Testament covenant of salvation in Christ. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. He's speaking to all the nations coming together. We see this in Acts 2 when the scripture says that all nations were there prophesying. All nations were present. And what? I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is speaking to baptism, the cleanliness that comes from Christ's forgiveness. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, idolatry, I will cleanse you. And I will give you what? A new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is the new birth that is in Christ that we understand from Ephesians 2. And I'll remove the heart of stone or the heart of death from your flesh. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll what? Put my spirit within you. 
and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all uncleanliness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. Look at verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act and do these things, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. See, if we're struggling with this truth, it shows and reveals potentially the selfish nature we have as it relates to our own salvation. If you hear the statement that Christ saved you ultimately not for you, but for his glory, and you go, ooh, but I thought it was about me, then you notice that part of the challenge there is your heart is potentially worshiping Christ for what he gives you more than what you can offer him in return. And I I don't say that condemningly. I say that in self-confession. I say that as I read these passages and struggle with these passages to recognize that God saved me because he loved me. For God so loved the world. And that but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Right? So I recognize this because of his mercy and grace. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved. So I'm not denying his great love for you and his great mercy for me and his love and mercy and abundant grace. But what I am saying is that all that ultimately still is for his glory. Look at John chapter 12. And I'm giving you a lot because I want you to see that this is not just an idea that comes from one or two verses. This is an idea that's consistent in both the Old and New Testament. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus would cry out before going to the cross. To the Father, he would say, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour or come to this moment. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Isaiah 43. I am he who blots out your transgressions. For what purpose? For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Why does he forgive us our sins? For his own sake. Psalm 25, King David would say, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 79, 9, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Psalm 143, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. 1 John 2, 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So he's saying, because of salvation, the Spirit lives within you. You are not your own anymore, but you've been bought with a price for the purpose of bringing honor and glory to God. Your life is not yours, it is his. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant to glorify the Father. And we too in our salvation was given to glorify the Father. But here's what I want you to see, is that what I'm about to say are not ideas that are opposed to one another, but they're ideas that are married to one another and cannot be separated. It's this. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant to glorify God, to glorify his name, and fill you with joy. When we think about what I want to try to make an argument is, 
is that the supremacy of God's glory is a very selfless act of us going, my life is not mine anymore. It's been bought with a price. My life is all about you, Jesus. But at the same time, it's the most selfish act you can do because it's in the selfless act of glorifying God that you receive the incredible reward of Jesus and the fulfillment of his joy. So in that sense, it's an incredibly selfish act, but a good selfishness that says, my life wants you, Jesus, more than anything else. Romans chapter 5, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's two ways to read that verse, one right and one wrong. The wrong way to read this verse is to say, is to understand it to mean that if I delight myself in the Lord, if I worship him, then he will give me my desire for X, Y, or Z. Let me give some illustrations. God, if I come and I worship you with my life, you'll give me this new car I've been my wanting. That's really the desire of my heart. God, if I worship and glorify you and I uh, seek after you, then you'll give me the desire of my heart, which is a new job or this relationship or this uh, accomplishment in life. No, what the text is saying is not if you do this, then this will happen as if it's separate. But the text is trying to argue that if you delight yourself in the Lord, you'll receive the desires of your heart because what your heart really longs for is delighting in the Lord. It's not saying you delight in the Lord and you'll get something else. What it's saying is your delight in the Lord is actually what your heart desires. More than anything else, because Christ has made us for himself, that our heart's desires, whether we recognize it or not, is to delight in the Lord. It's to find that joy in him. And it's in that delight of him that he is glorified. Psalms 90:14 Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our lives. Notice the results of what it means to delight and when the result of what it means to love the the love of the Lord in us. It's rejoicing, it's gladness all the days of our lives. Psalm 4:7 You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Notice he's saying grain and wine abound. These are some of the greatest blessings in creation. Grain and wine, food, abundance, blessing. You, God, have put more joy in my heart than anything this world has to offer. That's what the psalmist is saying. Psalm 21, 1 through 6. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Psalm 43, 4, skipping ahead a little bit. Then I'll go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. That's one of the reasons why when we talk about worship, we value this coming of singing of songs. Because it's one of the ways we express our joy and adoration and thanksgiving unto God. That's what the psalmist here is saying. Look at Psalm 68. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Psalm 16, I quoted it earlier. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that our chief end of our salvation in our life is to glorify God. And in the glorifying of God is actually where we find our greatest delight and joy. 
I want to make that clear because I don't want you to hear me say, well, glorifying God means sacrificing all goodness in this world to give him what he wants. It's, it's It's not this idea of a child who's having to give up something they really want to do something their parents don't want them to want. I got to get off the video game to go clean because that's what it means to honor you. And so we equate that into a, in our lives going, God wants me to do this. I guess I'll stop doing what I really want to go do what I think he wants. No, no, no. What it's saying is that he, what he wants of you is your greatest delight. It's not something that we have to sacrifice, but in fact, his glory is our gain because it is our delight. Ecclesiastes 5.20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. In the context of Ecclesiastes, he's talking about good and bad things. But the point is, he concludes, I won't remember any of those things. It won't matter because I'm occupied with the joy that I have in God. Isaiah 35.10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away from them. And then lastly, we come to Psalm 67. Prom opened with this text during our call to worship. But I want you to see how the mission of God and his blessing and the joy of the nations, the joy of his people go together. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and what? Sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Main point of today's sermon. Jesus humbled himself and became a servant to bring glory to God and to fill you with joy. Christ did not just save you to remove the penalty of sin, but he saved you, removing the penalty of sin, to then redeem you unto himself, So for all eternity, you could rest in the joy of his presence and relationship. This is a beautiful thing. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to pause the sermon halfway. It's a little more than halfway if you're keeping count and looking at the clock. But before we go on to the second half, it is our tradition, the second Sunday of every month, that we take the Lord's Supper together. And so I want to pause here, and I want us to take the Lord's Supper together. As we are just focused on the glory of God and what he has done. And that as we take of the elements, as we take of the cracker and drink of the juice, we're reminded of his grace and his mercy and what he has done. How he humbled himself, Philippians 2, in the form of a servant, even to the point of death. That he became a servant and died so that we could be redeemed, restored, forgiven back unto himself. And we eat in remembrance that his body was broken and his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We do this in worship in adoration of, uh, to him. Main point of the sermon, Jesus humbled himself to become a servant to glorify God and fill you with joy. Here's the main application in light of the main points. We too, you probably could fill these in without me even saying it, but we too must humble ourselves and become servants to glorify God and connect people to 
fullness of joy in Jesus, or as we like to say it in our mission, connect people to a life satisfied in Jesus. If Christ's mission was to humble himself and to become a servant, to glorify God, to redeem us and fill us with the joy of our salvation, then our mission also is to humble ourselves and become servants to the world around us in order to glorify God and connect people to the fullness of joy that is found in Jesus, the redemption that is found in Jesus. As I said, our mission here at New Hope, we have it on this wall, is to connect people to a life satisfied in Jesus. And people ask the question, and I've said this before, why connect people to a life satisfied in Jesus as opposed to connect people to a life of salvation in Jesus? Because both are true. And it's to say that the chief end of our salvation is to glorify God and for us to be filled with the joy of his redemption. Therefore, that then turns us to glorify God. The chief end of our salvation was not just the forgiveness of our sins, but the forgiveness of our sins brought about a restoration and reconciliation of relationship with Christ that ends in his glory and our satisfaction. And so we want Christians and non-Christians alike to see the truth of salvation so that they may dwell in the satisfaction that comes in Jesus. Jesus' mission is our mission. His mission was to bring glory to his name by seeking and saving the lost so that they may enjoy him and glorify him forever. Don't confuse the mission and the purpose of the mission. Meaning the mission is the means by which he brings glory and worship to himself. But the end goal by the mission is the worship of all people in all places unto his name. But because the goal, which is worship of all people unto his name, has not been accomplished, then a mission still exists. John Piper said it famously, missions exist because worship doesn't. Eventually, one day, missions will cease because all will praise and worship the Father in eternity. Praise and worship Christ in the Spirit but worship will never cease. So when you and I talk about mission, it is not for mission's sake, but it's for the glory of God and the redemption of people into right relationship with him. So when we talk about the chief end is for all people to worship Jesus, then we must ask the question, what is it then, what does it mean to worship Jesus? When we think of worship, the first thing that comes to my mind is what we do every Sunday. Rightfully so, in our culture, we call this worship because we gather together and we worship. And that is worship, but that's not all of what the Bible means when it says worship. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Worship is being redeemed by Christ in our entire lives, being centered and focused on him. People worship Jesus when they seek him as the supreme joy, supreme fulfillment, and supreme satisfaction in all areas of their life. Worship isn't just a Sunday gathering, it's all of our lives. Therefore, by finding our complete joy and satisfaction in him, we bring him glory. Our hearts seek Jesus above all because it knows that nothing else satisfies like Jesus. No one else saves. No one else loves us quite like Jesus does. What we pursue above all reveals in our hearts what we worship above all. Therefore, once again, John Piper says famously, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
If our existence is to bring God honor and glory, we do that by finding our complete satisfaction in him. It's this idea of my kids were out of town for a month and recently came home. And I, leading up to them coming home, they were hanging out with grandparents. And if you know anything about that, that means they're eating a lot of sugar and doing whatever they want. So when I ask the question, hey, are you so excited to come home at the end of the week? I want them desperately to say, Dad, I miss you so much. Dad, I want you so much. Dad, I haven't been happy without you. Dad, me being with you is going to make me happier than I've ever been before. Dad, you fulfill me and complete me. Dad, you're my everything. But of course they don't. They're just like, eh, not really. They, they say, did you get a pool since the last time we were there? No, grandma's got one. You know, like they say things like that. But my heart wants them to want me. Do you understand that that's the way it works with God as well? He is honored when we want him. He is honored when we seek to be with him. He is honored when we say, God, I've been in the things of creation and they have not satisfied. I've been away from you and I miss you. My heart longs for you. Do you see how God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, how that makes sense? That he's glorified by us because we want him. Our mission is to connect people to a life satisfied in Jesus. That's what we claim as our mission statement in our vision. That mission requires us, though, to humble ourselves and become servants, just like Jesus did. It requires sacrifice. It requires us to live not for ourselves, but for God. It requires us to die to our wishes and live for God's wants. It requires sacrifice. I've not always been the best example of this truth. But I will say I've lived much of my life seeking to say my life is fully surrendered to you, Jesus. That I want my life to be surrendered to you. Now I've done this imperfectly. But in moments where I've been at crossroads where I had to make a decision of pursuing what Christ had or pursuing what I wanted, there are tough decisions that have required sacrifice. I want to tell you a little bit of a story. I know we're running short on time, but I want to tell you this story. Um, I'm tall, and I'm decent at basketball. I'm not really great at basketball. Um, but for me, basketball was my life in high school. And going and playing basketball in college was everything. Now, from the outside looking in, I wasn't getting scholarships from any school you had ever heard of. So I didn't have a great career or anything like that. But it's not from your perspective that matters. It's from my perspective. And from my perspective, basketball was everything. Let me illustrate how important basketball was to me. Uh, Jen and I dated in high school. And we started dating my junior year. And she, here's some fun facts. She's the only girl I've ever dated longer than two months because I had a sister who was eight years older than me, who uh, I'm so grateful for, spoke into my life at a young age and prepared me to pursue, use dating in pursuit of marriage. So I was the weird middle schooler walking around going, I'm looking for my wife. I'm looking for my wife. Girls, I'm looking for my wife. And it took me about two months to realize that girl ain't going to be my wife. And so we move on. So the fact that Jenna's the only girl I dated longer than two months said that, hey, she might be my wife. She's also the only girl that I've ever said I love you to. Once again, my sister helped disciple me to protect not only my sexuality, but protect my heart. And so a junior year in high school, Jenna and I were talking about marriage. And now you go, well, that's weird. You know, what, what, what are the chances that juniors in high school talking about marriage actually get married? Well, we got married two years later, so there you go. We meant it. So here I am telling a, a girl I love her, never done before, meant it, telling a girl I'm going to marry her. She's that important to me, but then I break up with her because I had basketball scholarships that were going to take me away from her, and I didn't want to do long-distance relationship. 
I illustrate that to tell you how important basketball was to me. That I, I made a stupid mistake. Let's go ahead and just talk about that for a second. I shouldn't have done that. I came to my senses. I, I finally talked to her to go back out with me, and we got married. But before that, I was an idiot. But it, I'm telling you to so this is how important basketball was to me. And so the spring of my senior year, I was, I was in church, and I, remember, I don't remember what the pastor was preaching on. I don't remember anything about it, but I just remember being convicted by the Holy Spirit by saying, Jonathan, basketball is an idol in your life. It's not what I have for you. You need to call your coach and tell him you're no longer playing basketball, you're no longer taking the scholarship, and you're no longer coming to the school. Excuse me? No, I don't think so, God. I, I think, I think you, you're talking to the wrong person. Like, did you mean to talk to my friend next to me? Like, all these moments take place, but the conviction was so great, and me going, I want to live as one who is obedient to Christ. On the way home, I can remember where I was on Brother Boulevard, on the way to eat uh, Italian with my parents after church. I call my coach that day and tell him I'm not coming. I need you to see how important basketball was to me. And it's not to pat me on the back, but it is to say, that if I and my desire to live surrender to the Lord, there's moments where I do make sacrifices. I don't regret those sacrifices one bit. The sacrifice, and I'll say it as a sacrifice, but hear me out, but the sacrifice to move away from family and to come to New York City was a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice I don't regret, not at all. But it's still a sacrifice. It's me making a decision to go, God, I want to live for you and your glory and not for me and my glory. When we go to plant in Long Island, that's requiring sacrifice. We now have two rent payments. We now need two sets of audio and visual equipment. We now, it's a sacrifice. But it's us stepping out on faith and going, God, what do you have for us? We humble ourselves and become servants to glorify God. I want to live a life that matters in the kingdom of God. And I want to lead a church that is a church that matters for the kingdom of God. This desire to live missionally and to see people redeemed, restored, and find their satisfaction in Jesus for his glory and worship has led us to pursue planting a new church in East Meadow, Nassau County, which is a central location for those who live out in Long Island. But we've run into a problem. The problem is a practical problem, and here it is. There is a New Hope Church in Westbury, two miles from the location in which we are wanting to plant this church. As a church that emphasizes and sees the necessity for kingdom collaboration, we don't feel like it's a wise move to plant another New Hope Church just down the street. The other church is newhopeli.org. We be newhopeny.org. We don't feel like that that's a good partnership with them, and we don't feel like that's a good for the community. Hey, I go to New Hope Church. No, not that New Hope Church. I go to this New Hope Church. Well, I go to that. Which what? You can see the confusion that's going to take place. So as being um, good partners to them, we feel like that's not an option. So what is the solution? Why don't you just change the name of the church plants that were out, that's going out there to something different? That is a possibility, but the core team and the leadership of that church plant in Long Island still wish to be in one identity with the Queen's congregation. That it's the idea of planting a campus versus planting just a new church. It's the idea of going, we're one church in two locations, not two different churches altogether. The two congregations still want to be one, where we still go, have youth group together, and we can say that we all go to the same church. 
So there's an identity struggle that if comes if you change names and have two different names. So what option remains? For strategic, missional, and kingdom reasons for the future, the option that remains is to rebrand and change the name of New Hope altogether so that it does not conflict with any other church as we seek to plant more churches and campuses that might wish to carry our name. And here's the points of today and why we are having a town hall after service is I would like for us to begin a conversation about the possibility of changing our church name. Now, let me acknowledge what many of you, if not all of you, are feeling right now as you react to what I just said. Names are important. Names carry meaning. Names carry history. Names have emotional, even meaning to us. Therefore, this idea will create various emotions within us as we discuss it. Give an example. My name is Jonathan Samuel Nason. My oldest son is Samuel. I didn't name him after me. We have, we have biblical reasons why Samuel, but it wasn't father-son. But the, my name is Jonathan Samuel for a very specific reason. Let me tell you that reason. Let me tell you first why my middle name is Samuel. I have a brother, or excuse me, a sister 10 years older, a brother 8 years older, and then between eight years older to the adopted brother that's one year older, and then me. So there's about seven years in between the older two and then the younger two, seven to 10 years, depending on how you calculate it. Well, in those seven years, my mom had three miscarriages and two failed adoptions, meaning that there was a child placed in her home for adoption and then was later removed. And I was named Samuel because my mom went on a journey of crying out to God of why is this keep happening to me? Why the miscarriages? Why the failed adoptions? If you would just give me a son, I'll give him back to you all the days of your life. So when she got pregnant with me and I came to term, she was faithful and named me Samuel for that reason. But I was named Jonathan because one of the foster children that she was brought into her home for adoption, that they intended to adopt and began the process of adopting and was removed from the home, was named Jonathan. And so she named me after that child, recognizing that God was still faithful in giving the gift of the child, even though it wasn't the exact same biological person. And so my name has meaning. Names have meaning. I had a conversation last week with Jonathan and Aari, and I didn't tell them I was going to say this, so here we go. Um, but they have different last names because in their culture, names are different in how you carry over na- names when you get married and how the kids were named. And so I was asking about their twin girls and what their names are going to be. And I got really confused on what their names actually going to be because I don't fully understand the culture. Point is, names are done different in different cultures, but the names have meaning and there's a purpose to why it is. So I recognize that name, even New Hope, has meaning. And the thought of changing that names brings about emotions. But with all that being said, names have meaning because of what they represent. My name has meaning to me because of what it represents. Names are important because of what they point to. But in and of themselves, they are not more important than what they point to. I'm not saying that our name and changing our name as a church is no big deal. It is a big deal. But I am saying that our name is less important than what the name is pointing to. I am saying that Jesus and his glory is more important than his name. And if we feel like after prayer and discussion that changing our church name in order 
to be able to partner well in other communities, in order to be able to be distinguished between other communities for the sake of continuing to fulfill the mission that God has given us. Remember our vision. The next five years, we'll pursue leadership multiplication that will open the doors to gospel saturation to Queens and Nassau County. I want to encourage you tonight to go home and Google New Hope Churches in New York City. You're going to find more than one. You're going to find more than two. You're going to find more than three. We are partnering with a church in Jamaica that is naming their uh, church New Song of Hope. Then you get New Life Church, Hope Church, and every new and hope and life all around. And so we're saying, is this an opportunity for us to potentially distinguish by changing our name to something that is completely different and completely unique? So here's all I'm asking, is I'd like for us to have a conversation about it. No decision has been made on if we're going to change our name. And no decision has been made on if we were to change it, what we would change it to. But I would like for us to discuss this possibility. So here are two steps we're going to take to discuss this possibility as a church. First is tonight, immediately following service, and I'm going to dismiss this in literally three minutes. We are going to take about a 10-minute time, 10, 15 minutes to fellowship at 545 in this room. We're going to just continue this conversation and allow you to ask questions and allow me to give answers to this whole idea. Allow us to process the idea of the name change. Then in two weeks on August 27th, um, we are going to have a members-only meeting where the whole point of that meeting is we're going to brainstorm potential names. Again, no decision being made, but part of it is, you know, like if we were to change the name, what would we change it to? And so on August 27th, we're going to have that conversation. We're going to get in groups. We're going to brainstorm. We're going to get creative. We're going to come names. We're going to come together. We're going to discuss them. We're going to go, I don't like that name. I don't like that name. We're going to narrow it down. And then eventually, we will eventually have a vote in a members meeting, probably on October 1st or later, where we just simply vote whether this is something we want to do. You, we want counsel specifically as well, wants every person to have a voice in this conversation. That this is an important decision because names have meaning and they are our identity. And so we want everybody to have a voice in the conversation. And so in the town hall tonight, in the weeks to come, at the members meeting, you'll have a voice in the conversation. But let us and let me remind you of why we are doing and having this conversation. I am not, let me be clear, I am not saying without a shadow of a doubt, I believe the Lord's telling us to change our name. I am not saying that. But what I am saying without a shadow of a doubt is that God's called us to be a church that is willing to do whatever is necessary to bring him honor and glory. And this might be one of those things he's asking us to do. But I want us to discover that together through prayer and conversation. God is calling us to humble ourselves and become servants to glorify God and connect people to the fullness of joy in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. And I know that even as we ended with a very practical and important conversation for our church, we just stop that idea for a second and we just reflect on the fact that you have created us and you have redeemed us for your honor and glory. And I pray that you would use this church as we live surrendered to you to bring honor and glory and fame to your name here in New York City and around the world. I pray that you would use us to raise up leaders and send out leaders to plant churches all over this city. I pray that you would use us as we collaborate with other churches to see 
the gospel go forth and people come to know Christ. I pray that we would be a church that would say we have leveraged and positioned ourselves to be fully surrendered to you, to be used however you want, because Jesus, all we need is you, and we want to honor and glorify you with our lives. So would you help us in the days to come, not only in this conversation, but in other conversations about buying the church, this church building and renting other churches and raising up other pastors and leaders and ministry leaders and missionaries. We pray for Sam and Courtney in Bangladesh who, who have left New York City to go to Bangladesh for the sake of proclaiming your name. We pray for them. We pray that you would continue to use this church, small like a mustard seed, to be multiplied for your glory and honor. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.